Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. In our respective corners of North America today. I only got home last night, dude. Uh, yeah, you've been in Russia, right? I've <laughs> been in Russia, yes. In Yakutsk. Yakutsk. Uh, yes. And uh, you know, I don't know if you ever watched Game of Thrones, but anybody has. I actually, I swear to you, saw Castle Black there. <laughs> like they, the inspiration for the big ice wall and stuff, it, it's in Siberia. Did you stay in an ice hotel? I did not. I stayed in a perfectly normal hotel. Then uh, it was perfectly normal. But mm-hmm. uh, we did go out on the uh, the Lena River and went to a place called the Lena Pillars Park, which is a UNESCO site. Wow. And it was, the, the river was frozen, maybe three or four meters of ice on it. Wow. So they, they use it as a road. Yep. And uh, it was amazing. It was beautiful. And saw a really cool group of startups and hackers and coders mm-hmm. in a place you just wouldn't expect them. That's awesome. I have some news. Hit me. Uh, do you remember last year when you, people know that I've been following this ketogenic way of eating and mm-hmm. uh, have reversed type 2 diabetes and lost about 80 pounds over the last couple of years? And uh, it's been great. And a lot of other developers have heard about it on .NET Rocks and come over and listen to my other podcast, Two Keto Dudes. And last year we did a Keto Fest festival in New London, right where I live. And uh, did a Kickstarter to raise money. Well, we've done another Kickstarter for Keto Fest 2018, when we we raised twice as much money. We're going to have twice as much content. Awesome. Yeah. So we raised about ninety-one thousand dollars on Kickstarter in thirty days, and now KetoFest.com points to a new website where you can just go buy tickets and come. And it's got a Fasting Friday. So if you're into fasting, anything like that, there's going to be support for that all day. On Friday, then there's a social Saturday where we're going to have like a pig roast and turn the restaurants ketogenic, do cooking, live cooking demonstrations and tastings, uh, wine tasting, cheese making, um, barbecuing, like all sorts of great stuff. And then on Science Sunday, we have a proper uh, list of lecturers in two locations. Um, and these are the movers and shakers and thought leaders in the area. So if you're interested in that, go to ketofest.com. That's it. Cool. Yeah. All right. And it's time for the segment called Better Know a Framework. Awesome. All right, dude, what do you got? You know, it's reminiscent of the Google Weirdos song. Do you remember the Google Weirdos song? Yes. (laughs) There's a song you haven't put on the show in a decade. We should call Rory and see what's up. And maybe he could come on and do a Google Weirdos from time to time. Oh, my goodness. All right. (laughs) That'd be something. All right. Well, today I've got a blog post which I think is sort of germane to what Steve Smith is going to be talking about. Uh, It's by Samir Buna, and it's called The Mistakes I Made as a Beginner Programmer. Nice. And I'm just going to list them. And, of course, he goes into detail in the blog post. But number one, writing code without planning. Number two, planning too much before writing code. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear Steve smiling. (laughs) Um, Number three, underestimating the importance of code quality. Number four, picking the first solution. Five, not quitting. Six, not Googling. Seven, not using encapsulation. Eight, planning for the unknown. Nine, not using the right data structures. And 10, making existing code worse. (laughs) (laughs) and i'm sure steve has got a lot to to comment on about all of these things because you guys are in the same space uh headspace anyway right now so that's what i got it's a great blog post highly recommend reading it top to bottom and thank you sam air for uh for writing it awesome 
So who's talking to us today, Richard? Grabbed a comment off the show 1494 from back in November of 2017, not that long ago, talking about developer tips and design patterns with one Stephen Smith. Maybe yeah. you heard of him. Lots of comments on that show, but that's not unusual. Steve usually engenders a ton of comments from the show. And this particular comment's a good one. So it's just from a few months ago. It says, hey, guys, this is from Jonathan Ayub. I enjoyed listening to your show. The test builder pattern is something that I came across a couple of years ago. Mark Seaman points out that instead of creating and maintaining a bunch of test builders, you might want to consider automating the task of building classes. Mark created a framework called Auto Fixture, which allows you to build test data and classes that you are testing with a fluent interface. This framework allows you to decouple your tests from constructors of the objects you are building because the framework instantiates those objects for you. In the case where you want a builder to create an object with data that has a named use case, like creating a customer with an invalid zip code, I suppose you could still create a test builder with a method to construct that invalid customer, but I could use auto fixture under the hood. You would still be creating a builder, but it would remove a lot of the boilerplate code involved. And he includes a link to the article from Mark Seaman and to auto fixture itself. Awesome. Which is all good. And I would point out that our guest commented, Earlier today, so obviously he was doing his homework, getting ready for the show, where he said that uh, auto fixture is a good tool to check out. Definitely, I would recommend that developers get comfortable with building their test data themselves so they understand what's going on and then look to use tools like auto fixture to simplify the effort involved if they think it's worthwhile, which mm. I'll let Steve comment further on that, I'm sure, since I just stole his comment from his own mouth. <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for your comment, and I will include those links in the show notes. And uh, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or via any of our social media. Because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a mug. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We don't plan too much before we retweet them. <laughs> When you say too much, you mean not at all. Not at all. All right. Uh, it's time to bring back to the show Mr. Steve Smith. He's an entrepreneur and software developer with a passion for building quality software as effectively as possible. He's published several courses on Pluralsight covering DDD, solid, design patterns, and software architecture. Steve is a Microsoft MVP, a frequent speaker at developer conferences, an author, and a trainer, and one of the founders of DevIQ, a training technology company focused on improving software development teams. You can follow Steve online at ardalis.com, that's A-R-D-A-L-I-S.com, or at ardalis on Twitter. Welcome back, Steve. Hi, Carl. Hi, Richard. How's it going? Hey, man. It's good. It's good. How are it's you? good to be back. We just saw each other Dev Intersection, right? That's right. That was a good show. Great that show. Was a good show. Yeah, good fun. I had a good turnout for my workshop on uh, DDD with ASP.NET Core and, and a couple of sessions, one of which was actually on clean architecture. So mm. I've got all this fresh in my mind. Yeah. We we'd really originally contemplated doing it on the uh, at the show itself, but just timing was hard. Hey, I know you didn't have a chance to read that blog post, but what did you think of uh, Samer's list of uh, things that he did, mistakes that he made as a beginner programmer? I thought that was great. I actually did read it myself separately from you pointing it out um, last week or two weeks ago. Mm. Uh, it's similar. Some of it, uh, like the Googling part, are similar to a post I put up on uh, Hacker Noon um, called Working Through Roadblocks, a Guide for New Programmers. Mm. Um, and, and that got a lot of, uh, of well, for me anyway, it got a lot of uh, shares and likes. So um, folks that haven't seen that, they might want to check that out. Yeah, very good. So what are you working on these days, my friend? What are you thinking about? 
I am working on a, an update for my um, architecture book for Microsoft, which I think we linked to in the, in the past show. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's it's out there. It's uh, developing applications with ASP.NET Core and Azure. Mm-hmm. And it covers architecture and, and a little bit of uh, design patterns that are helpful. Uh, and basically shows how to build a maintainable ASP.NET Core application that you can then host in Azure if you want, because uh, this is this is Microsoft's ebook. It's published on on their site, and you can download it for free as a PDF. Um, but you don't have to use Azure to get benefit from from reading the book. It, all the principles and everything that it covers would work just fine if you were hosting it yourself or or on some other cloud provider. Yeah, very good. And uh, you're thinking about clean architecture these days. I mean, you've always sort of thought about clean architecture, but uh, is there anything new in in, in that? space that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think it's gotten easier to do it that way, to, to code things in a in a way that encourages strong cohesion and mm-hmm. low uh, coupling, except where it makes sense. Um, and for me, I've always been fascinated by this particular topic, especially because when I first was, was becoming, you know, my, my job title at the time, I think, was like senior developer or senior consultant or something. And I, I first started speaking at conferences. My very first uh, conference talk was on N-tier architecture. Hmm. Wow. And now, you know, that, that was the recommended best practice coming out of Microsoft and, and on all the MSDN articles back in the day. And now that's kind of what I'm trying to convince clients to get away from and, and kind of flip over on its head. Yeah. Um, and, and so that, that idea isn't terribly new. Um, you know, the, I think articles on it have, have been written over the last 15 years. Uh, but there's still, if I if I go to a conference talk like I did, you know, Dev Intersection, and ask people to raise their hands that organize their their solution as you know a UI project that references a business logic layer project that references a data access layer project, mm. um, that's that's at least half the hands go up in the room. Sure. Um, and and that that approach tends to lead to a lot of tight coupling to your infrastructure and especially your database. Mm. I think a lot of people have this idea that if they're going to separate everything into units that act uh, as, as standalone components, that it's going to add so much time to our development cycles that, you know, we're not going to bother. We're not going to bother separating. We're not going to bother to do MVVM if we're building desktop apps or, or even, you know, uh, view models when we're building, um, you know, JavaScript front ends. So what do you say to that? Uh, depends on what you're building. I mean, uh, as a consultant for many years, my go-to response is it depends. But you know, I I usually start with the simplest thing that can possibly work, yeah. Uh, and then I fix it, you know, as as I need to, right? As 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 you keep on investing in the project, the need for additional abstractions or patterns, uh, architectural principles that should be followed, like the separation of concerns principle that you mentioned, mm-hmm. they get more and more important. You don't need a lot of that when you're writing Hello World. You start to need a lot of that when you have a, a project that's got you know half a dozen developers working on it for six months. And especially if you need to test any of those components independent of each other. Yeah, definitely. Um, the There's a great book on testing legacy software um, by Michael Feathers. The and classic. Yes. Yep. Uh, working effectively with legacy code. It's not just about testing, but um, but one of the points he makes is that you're, you're – Code should have many seams where you can break it apart to test individual units. Um, and code that doesn't follow these types of principles tends to have very few seams. In fact, the only seam it might have is that you can run it and then see what comes out the other end. And he's big on this is whole bit creating a testable space around that code, like finding a way to be able to test it and be have some confidence that you know what's going on. 
Yes. Uh, in fact, one of the definitions he has in that book that, that I remember now, um, which is great, is that, well, what is legacy code? Well, his definition mm. is legacy code is code that doesn't have tests. Right. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> okay. You can be writing legacy code right now. Well, and, you know, <laughs> or may not be testable in, in its architecture, right? I mean, a lot of legacy apps that we've, you know, uh, encountered tend to cram everything into as few files, as source code files as possible, Right. Because that yes. that sounds like it's you know seems on the surface like it's going to be more manageable, right? Yeah, and it, it turns out not when you look at the project, if it's only got like you know two or three files in it, well, you don't have to scrounge around very much in the in the folder structure to find where the where the file is that you need. Right, you just have to you know scroll vertically through thousands of lines of code to find the the actual exactly. piece that you're looking for. <laughs> Yeah, we have a we have grep tools for uh you know finding source code on disk, but ultimately it should be up in a source control area like GitHub or or Visual Studio Team system where you can just search online. You can just search for it, whatever you're looking for. Certainly. Yeah, and you can certainly search across Visual Studio as well. And the the tooling for that has gotten so much better. Yeah. Um, there have always been uh, uh, plugins and add-ins and other extensions that you could use that would help. Um, but Visual Studio 2017 now um, has great support for that kind of thing mm. um, to just be able to easily navigate to any given file or type or method inside of your, your code base. So the easiest thing is the tooling has gotten so much better now that it's just easier to do this or we have fewer excuses? That I would say that's true. Um, you know, coding in a way that leverages the solid principles and, right. and allows you to build loosely coupled applications um, tends to require that you do a lot of uh, working with interfaces and uh, dependency injection using the strategy design pattern. And so you end up writing a lot of constructors that take in some some interface type that you then want to map to a local field in a class, let's say. Uh, and now Visual Studio has, for, for a couple versions now, um, has support where you can do that with their, their tooltip helper. And so my, my go-to... Uh, keyboard shortcut when I is to type CTOR tab to build the constructor, and then immediately I can I can type in the interface I want and give it whatever name, and then hit Control Dot and it'll pop up and say, Oh, do you want me to initialize a field uh, based on this this thing? And I'll you know select that and hit Enter, and it does. And so you know instead of having to type you know like thirty or forty characters of the constructor and the the field and the, everything else in the assignment, um, it it does it all in like you know. I have to type like eight characters. And right. so for something like that, you I mean that, that just reduces the friction, right? It's not difficult code to write. It's just annoying that you have to type it all. And so, you know, Visual Studio kind of just makes that easier. Uh, I think Huck, it was it Guthrie once said, it's like, my goal is to make you fall into the pit of success. So it, 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 it seems like the tools yeah. headed that way, right? They were just the easiest path of using this tool now is having these best practices. Does it just mean that the tool's gotten way more opinionated? Um, I don't know about that. I mean, you can still write code that doesn't follow these practices. Sure. Just fine. Uh, it's not It's not forcing you to do it this way, um, in, you know, using dependency injection, for example. Uh, but it certainly makes it easier to fall into the pit of success. And that's a, that's a phrase I like as well. Um, I, I Also, in how you architect your code, it's a good idea for you to make it so doing the right thing is easy and the wrong thing is hard. Right. And, it, and this gets back to like writing testable code in the first place. Yes. And, and one of the things that you can do to make the wrong thing hard is make it so that dependency on direct implementation details uh, should be in a project that 
you cannot reference from from places where you don't want that dependency. Yeah. So you know you you set up your project structure, and this is this is where the clean architecture stuff really starts to come into play, so that you can't have your business logic depend on your database because you have the project where the data access is depending on your business logic instead right. of the other way around. And so if you have a developer that, you know, is in some business logic and they realize they need to go fetch something from the database, they can't just new up a new, you know, SQL data reader or, you know, repository or whatever the uh, type might be. They're forced to use some other technique to use dependency injection and, and an interface and, and let that all be resolved at runtime. Um, and, and that results in a more loosely coupled uh, type of code that's way easier to unit test and has more seams where you can break it apart into different modules. So on the on the topic of clean architecture, I don't know if, if you two are aware, but I have a solution template uh, out there on GitHub ah. um, on, at slash rdallas slash clean architecture. Okay. And and it's I call it a solution template um, because Visual Studio like they have all kinds of project templates that they've never really shipped an easy way to do solution templates where you just say right. file new solution and and it creates all these things for you. Uh, so the closest I've gotten is to create this GitHub repo that, that then anyone can download or, or clone uh, and then just change the name of everything and make that your project. And, and it gives you a, a starter, essentially, with, with all the projects you need to start building it, something using the clean architecture for ASP.NET Core. And specifically for ASP.NET Core. So, I mean, I, I got to think when you get into these kinds of architectural decisions, you need to be opinionated about what tools you're using. Uh, yeah, for, in this case, it, it's definitely for ASP.NET Core. I mean, I could I could create a separate one that was for you know ASP.NET MVC or Web API sure. or what have you, um, and it would it would just you know lay out all the basics for you. But since most of what I'm doing is is ASP.NET Core these days, that's that's where where I'm investing. So where do your opinions show? What do you, what decisions are you making here in terms of making a clean architecture? Well, one of the biggest ones is is what are the projects and how are they related. And then the second one to that is what goes into each project. Uh, and so essentially for, for the actual application, I always have three projects um, okay. for, for anything that's non-trivial, like beyond a Hello World app. Uh, and those are a core project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and in the, uh, the ebook that I wrote for Microsoft, we, we call that the application core project, uh, mostly because uh, – you know, sometime after I started writing that book was when Microsoft decided to name .NET Core and ASP.NET Core um, from what they were previously calling it. So, yeah. um, just in the in the interests of not making that that word be too overloaded, um, but it, it is the the center of your app. Yeah, it's what everything shares. Yes, um, and it's where all the most important part of your application logic should live. Right, that's where your business logic should be. That's where your entities that represent the the things that you're modeling in your application should be defined, and that's where your the lion's share of your interfaces and abstractions that other parts of your application will use should be defined. Steve, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment to hear this very important message. Hey, guess what, Rockheads? Progress Telerik wants to send someone to build, so they're having a contest. Step one is to sign up and learn about the new innovative modern UI tools they'll be announcing at Build. By registering, you'll be entered to win a full conference pass to Microsoft Build, plus a $500 travel stipend. They're also giving away three Telerik DevCraft UI licenses. And for .NET Rocks listeners, they'll also be giving away a Telerik DevCraft UI license every week. 
All you have to do is register at buildcontest.pwop.me. That's buildcontest.pwop.me. Progress offers the leading platform for developing and deploying mission-critical business applications. The creator of the award-winning Telerik.net and Kendo UI, JavaScript user interface components and controls, reporting solutions, and productivity tools, Progress offers all the tools developers need to build high-performant, modern apps with outstanding UI. Go now to buildcontest.pwop.me and sign up to win. And we're back. It's .NET Rocks, Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell, and we're here with our friend Steve Smith, who's talking about clean architecture. Uh, so you were saying about uh, your three projects. That's right. So, so in the core project, you've got all your business logic. The, the most important thing to remember about this core project is nothing else. Um, it doesn't depend on anything else um, right. if you can help it. So, mm-hmm. so it, it depends on, you know, the framework, you know, .NET Framework or .NET Core. Um, but it doesn't depend on SQL Server or the networking stack or your file system or, or any type of external infrastructure type stuff. Um, that all goes in another project, which I call infrastructure. So the infrastructure project is the second project in the solution. Hmm. It depends on the core project. Inside the infrastructure project, you're going to put all your implementations of anything that needs to talk to outside resources, like databases and web services and file systems. Um, and these these uh, classes that you're going to write will implement interfaces that are defined in core. Yeah. So the infrastructure project has a project reference and a dependency on the core project. Because that's where those interfaces are defined. Right. Okay. And, and then, in theory, if you needed to change the infrastructure, you're only changing in this one place. The rest of the app doesn't care. Right. Yeah. And it makes it really easy for you to change, uh, on the fly even, how your application is sort of stitched together at runtime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a very common thing that, that folks will do when they, when they want to improve the performance of their application is add some data caching. And if you have the infrastructure project separated and you have your data access code in, let's say, repositories inside that project, and now you want to add caching, you can just write a new repository that does the caching and then have it call into the the actual repository that, that does the data access, uh, and it can just sort of sit on top of that as a, as a decorator or a proxy uh, pattern. And then in your application's startup, wherever you wire up all these dependencies, you can decide whether or not to use that caching uh, implementation or not. And so you could do, you know, performance testing and see well, what kind of performance do we get with no caching right. and then, you know, plug that caching layer in, run your tests again and see what, what impact those have. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, yeah, I, I'd love to do the kind of test where it's like, let's stop decomposing our objects into rows and columns of SQL Server and start stashing it in a, in a document store exactly. like Raven or Mongo or Cosmos DB, just being able to have a confidence that you could do that experiment in a in a short amount of time, do no harm, and be able to measure it meaningfully. Mm. Right. Yes. And the really cool thing about this particular type of building uh, applications is that most of the time, when you're when you're adding functionality or even fixing a bug, you should be doing that inside of a new class. Right. And the benefit the benefit of writing your code inside of new classes is that you know nothing else is calling it yet. It didn't exist before. So you're not you're not breaking anybody. And so that's very liberating, uh, especially if you're a maintenance developer who's used to trying to like find the line of code inside the 400 long line method that, that you need to change. Like if you're writing a new class 
you have you know no constraints as long as uh, you're probably complying to whatever interface that that class has to uh, return ultimately you can implement things however you want and you can start to take a legacy code base and and start cleaning it up and moving it toward uh, one that's more testable by by putting your new functionality and your bug fixes into new classes right that's super smart and, and it, what's interesting is you're still talking about end tier applications but you're no longer just defining tiers by those roles so much as it's the separation of concerns sure and and more importantly i think the the direction in which the dependencies flow um so, right. so let me wrap up with the the third project that i have inside my my clean architectures and that will be the user interface project and okay. in this case it's an asp.net app so it's a web project is what i call it um and so that's where you'll have, you know, your ASP.NET Core stuff, and you'd have your controllers and views, your, or your API controllers, or if you're using uh, Razor Pages, your Razor Pages would live there. Now, looking at the dependencies, then inside that project, you would have the the UI project or the web project will depend on Core because those controllers and other things are going to need some way to get to data um, or to call business level services that they're going to use. And so the interfaces that define that data access or those services, they're all defined inside of core. And the entities and the, and the business objects that your web application is going to use, those are defined in core as well. So web definitely has to have a, a dependency on the core project. The other dependency that it might have is on the infrastructure project where the actual implementation lives. And typically, to, to make things easy, um, I'll make that a, a project reference in Visual Studio so that when hmm. you build, it does everything correctly. Because my instinct would say I want to avoid a relationship with the infrastructure architect, uh, uh, implementation if I need, if I can, that I only care about talking to the core. Correct. You're, you're saying, I think you're saying exactly what I'm saying. You, yeah. you want to avoid that dependency from web to infrastructure. Um, the one place where you need to know about it is when you're starting up the application and you're telling the application how to register the services that it's going to use. Okay. And in, in ASP.NET Core, that all happens typically inside of the startup.cs class. Mm -hmm. So if you were to look at a solution or, or look at a web project rather um, and, and search through all the different files, the only place where you should see something that's using infrastructure namespaces or types should be in that startup.cs. Now, right. you can actually take it a step further and get rid of that project reference entirely, um, but then it just it makes it a little more complicated to do your application startup. You just have to use some reflection to load that infrastructure DLL, and, you know, copy it and load it, um, and then, you know, do that service registration using reflection instead of being able to use the, the strongly typed. But if your only dependency is the startup CS, like, that's a pretty good encapsulation mm -hmm. of the problem. Yeah, and that's why I don't usually bother with the right. the reflection way. Um, the one benefit that you would get, stepping back to what we were just talking about with uh, making the wrong thing hard, is that you would make it basically impossible for some new developer on the team to go into a controller and just you know new up a repository or new up your entity framework DB right. context, right. define that that type that's defined in infrastructure, um, and start using it. Right. right. The only way they could do that is to add that reference, and hopefully inside of your, your code review or your pull request, you'd see that reference being added and say, wait, we don't want that reference. Well, yeah, well, I, I mean, I would be nice about it. It's like justify that reference. Like, Sure, sure. But, you know, we talk about useful parts of code reviews. This whole every time we add a reference, did we really need to do that? Like, what was it there? Mm. Well, why do we need this? Yeah, that's that's definitely true. I mean, that's, that's a major uh, – 
potentially a major change to the, the architecture of your application is every time you add a reference or change how the projects are organized to one another. So it should definitely be worth a, at least a second glance by, by someone on the team when, when someone's trying to do that. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that we've pretty much led off this conversation with, uh, I really don't want to take that dependency. What are we going to do to stop that dependency from happening? And just because you knew when you took that dependency, you're going to only reference it in startup doesn't mean that somebody less experienced isn't going to go, oh, I have that reference. I'm mm. going to do this over here. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, I must be that happy time again. Yeah. It's time to divide today's joke into three parts. Core, which establishes the premise. Infrastructure, <laughs> which contains all the standard gags. And the user interface, which are the words that I say that make you laugh. See, it's still not funny. <laughs> Proving that the proper architecture doesn't mean your end product will work. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's actually pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's actually a good one. <laughs> and it, yeah, it may not be funny, but at least it's repeatable. That's right. At least it's testable. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> uh, it's actually time to give away a D experience subscription from our good friends at Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. You know, everyone knows that DevExpress has great desktop controls and tools, but their web tools are simply amazing. They have this collection of HTML5 JavaScript controls called DevExtreme. And at the heart of this product line are these really powerful controls like grid, chart, and pivot grid, and tree list, and scheduler. But DevExtreme also comes with more than 50 touch-optimized client-side controls, data visualizers, navigators, editors, lists, dialogues, and notification controls, and general purpose controls like a filter builder, range slider, file uploader, scroll view, and more. And since they're all HTML5, JavaScript, and CSS, they include integrations with things like jQuery, Knockout, React, Ionic, and Angular. Plus, DevExtreme controls come with ASP.NET MVC and ASP.NET Core wrappers, so they're infinitely flexible. Don't take our word for it. Go for a test drive at dx.netrocks.com. That's dx.netrocks.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Louise Fisher. Congratulations, Louise. Yes. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for Louise. She just won the D Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to join the fan club, go to .netrocks.com. Click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and you're in. Every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree to one lucky member of the fan club. But you got to sign up to win. And all right, Steve, it's been a while. If you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? I'm still waiting to get that Tesla. And if I do enough shows and rack up <laughs> enough 5K so wish lists, I might have enough. You're, but, up, you're um, up to the windshield now. Nice. <laughs> no, I think what I would get uh, right now, I think I'm looking to upgrade my desktop developer rig mm -hmm. and get something that has a lot more RAM um, and you know maybe a couple of video cards that are uh, more modern. My my desktop machines are all like three four years old, so oh. um, they're they're struggling to run Docker and Kubernetes and some of the newer virtualized environments. Right. So right. and that whole thing was supposed to be lighter weight, so it wouldn't be so hard on your machine. 
Yeah, but you got to have the right uh, CPU architecture to support the virtualization, and that's where you know my one main machine in my office it, it won't run Docker. And oh I have no! To, I have okay. to remote into another machine to be able to even run Docker. I'm holding back on buying CPUs right now just because they're going to be fixes to uh, Meltdown Inspector in the next rev or so, and this is kind of a yes. It's a good time to wait. I'm still holding out. Uh, but it, but the day is coming soon when I knew I will need the that new hardware. And and since I don't think I'll spend the whole five k on a on a new developer machine, I'll, I'll maybe look at getting the Hololens too to play with. Ah, very good, very good. Yeah, I love my Hololens. Is there another Hololens coming out? Well, they they say by the end of the year they should have something. But he, you know, Alex Kitman didn't, you know, publicly announce a date. I got to think we're going to ha- hear a bunch of stuff at Build. I mean, these shows coming out just a couple of weeks before Build, like, the, the, so for sure, you got to think there'll be some good stuff at Build. Yep. Not that we know anything. No, we don't know anything. No. But we're hoping. Absolutely. Yeah, we are due for a new HoloLens for sure. And hopefully it's less than $3,000. Steve, I have a question for you. Um, uh-huh. It's been my experience that, if I'm relying on components, whether they're open source components, whether they're, you know, tools that we're using that are paid uh, third party tools, it's always better. And, and you can avoid a lot of problems by, by using the source projects in your project and instead of just taking a, um, you know, an assembly and linking that in and make, adding a reference to an assembly. In .NET, I've um, undone a whole bunch of problems that that I had in Visual Studio by doing that, and it's not just because you have control over the source and you can find bottlenecks and things, but it, it's just cleaner. You just don't have any of these um, compile issues or version issues or you know those kinds of things that you do uh, otherwise. So you're saying if you're depending on a like a third-party component, I assume it must be open source, um, that you would not want to take a dependency on their their packaged release or their NuGet package or whatever it might be, um, yeah. And instead, just just pull their source onto your local machine and, yes. and keep it up to date. Yes, that's that's what that's I I've had better luck doing that whenever I can, and have been bitten by you know what's going on in here? Why isn't this working? Oh well, if we remove that and replace it with the source version of it uh everything everything works better interesting yeah i've i've had mixed luck with that um i mean there are problems either way you go typically i i go the other way just out of i don't know just convention and ease of use mm-hmm. is i'll i'll use the the nuget package um definitely before nuget was popular you know your approach was had had all the benefits and very few downsides i think um but but now with with NuGet and with its you know versioning capabilities and stuff, mm. um, I I tend to to use NuGet more and more, and and I think part of that too is that uh, with .NET Core, dependencies by default are on NuGet packages, yeah, um, more so than on than on assembly. Uh, so even within companies, I'm I'm seeing a lot of companies go to having their shared code that that many projects use, mm-hmm. um, deploying that using a NuGet package strategy, so that. Uh, applications that are are using them can just depend on a particular version mm-hmm. and then pick and choose when they want to update whereas in the past before they made that change they did exactly what you're saying they'd have 
you know, maybe a dozen different applications that all had as part of their solution, this shared library that everybody used. Yeah. And when they would do a get latest, um, if, if somebody had to make a breaking change to that shared library, now all those projects would get the latest and all their solutions would fail at the same time. Right. And they'd have to invest in fixing all of them at once. Right. Uh, when, when really maybe half of them or most of them don't care about that change. It could have just kept running on the previous version. Right. Um, so, so that's, that's the, the downside. The, the upside is if you want to be able to debug through that source code, it's way easier if you've got it in your project. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. And I found that especially when mixing versions of, uh, of, of .NET, you know, that's, so you have something that was compiled in .NET 2.5, 3.5, you have stuff that was compiled in 4, and your project is using the latest, that uh, I, I, I had uh, a, a, a big project that I had to deconstruct that way, and that was the only way to make things work. Yeah, and work yeah, well. and that that can definitely be yeah. a pain um, because a lot of times they have that that dependency on a particular version because something in there needs it, right. but maybe it's not the thing that you're using. Right, and so if you can just pull out that that code, then then you'll be able to to put it into something that uses whatever framework you're using, and you'll be fine. Right. Hopefully, hopefully Net Standard makes that a little easier. Yep. Um, and and speaking back to to clean architecture, um. Uncle Bob, Robert C. Martin, uh, has a recent book out called Clean Architecture, and he reviews some of his principles for components in there. Um, there's three of them. There's a re- reuse, release, equivalence. There's the common closure principle, common reuse principle. Right. Um, and, and one of the things that these principles guide you toward is packaging up your your things that change together together and things that are unrelated to one another, put those in a different package. Uh, and so one of the pain points you're feeling is someone, and it, and it might have been Microsoft, I don't know, um, put too many things together that all have a common dependency on, on this framework version when, in fact, some of that stuff could have just been in a, in a separate package that you could have depended on and, and it wouldn't have had that dependency and it would have saved you some pain. Hmm. Right, yeah. So again, net standard, I hope, um, starts to fix that problem where you're not dependent on a, a, a particular package or library is not dependent on a specific implementation of .NET but instead is just saying, hey, I implement this particular standard, this particular version of net standard. Uh, and so you should be able to to take those dependencies on those types of libraries much easier in the future once that once that becomes the standard. So, I mean, .NET standards at 2.0, they're already talking about a 2.1. Like, what would you be looking in the standard that would make this less painful? Well, if, let's say, I don't know what... what type of thing Carl's code was depending on inside of this library that was using right. .NET 3.5. But let's let's say that it wasn't doing anything crazy with specific APIs or uh, or libraries that were, you know, talking to to infrastructure. Let's say it was mostly just doing logic in memory, right? Maybe it was like date time code or something. Well, that type of stuff is not going to require a, a very high level of net standard. Like mm-hmm. net standard starts at like 1.0 and, and works its way up, and each each additional level basically encompasses a larger surface area of API. Right. So they they could have whoever it is that he was depending on, they might have taken all of their stuff that didn't depend on uh, high levels of the standard and put that into its own package, its own component or NuGet package um, that maybe targeted net standard 1.0 or 1.6 right. or something right. very very small. Yeah, um, and then he could have easily taken that into his project and not had to worry about its other you know other dependencies that it that it might have had yeah it turned out to be uh just one assembly that was the problem but it was several layers deep and in order to get to that we had to get the source code of all of the other components that we were that were calling on it and using it 
And that's when we found the problem. Sure. And I'll, I'll bet there wasn't a lot of abstraction there or seams where you could have injected in your own implementation of, of that thing. That uh, was yeah, absolutely on. not. No, it was locked up. Yeah. And, and that's, that's what you get if you, if you don't follow this approach of, of using abstractions and using dependency injection, uh, you'll end up with code that's, that's tightly coupled and, and the path of execution is identical to the path of compilation. And that's one of the things that, that I talk about in my talks and workshops is if you follow this loosely coupled clean architecture approach, you can compile against abstractions and then your path of execution is flexible. You can decide which object graph you want to use at runtime and you can pick and choose, you know, which implementations to, to use. Uh, that makes it way easier to test your code. It also makes it way easier for your code to adapt to change over time. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And you've always been a really strong advocate of DDD. Is there anything specific into your template in this approach that are very DDD? Or could I be more of a test-driven design guy or other approaches and still the architecture makes sense to me? Yeah, clean architecture is is the architecture that DDD um, promotes or you know espouses in the book. Right, um, I, don't, right. I don't think it had that name at the time, but that's that's the the basic architecture. My template that you can grab off of GitHub does have some DDD things in it. It has uh, support for entities, value objects. Those are you know the basic building blocks of most DDD models. It also has support for domain events, which mm -hmm. is a a very useful design pattern that's uh, that DDD talks about. And it's a way for you to have uh, code such as in your entities um, raise an event to say that something happened. And then you can write handlers for those events that will do whatever you know follow-on work uh, or logic needs to occur when that happens. And it's a great way for you to separate when something happens from things that need to occur as a result of it. Uh, and so I, I put that implementation into this sample just so you know it's, it's there and, and folks can use it if they want. Mm -hmm. um, other than that, I, I have in my in my labs that I that I do in my workshop, we add some additional DDD stuff like aggregates and specifications. Um, and there's there's another uh, project on my on my GitHub which is called DDD Guestbook, and we can include a link to it in the show notes if you want. Um, but that basically adds on these additional patterns and is the uh, the lab that I use in my workshops. Awesome. Where do you fall on the whole test-driven development side? Because we've been having conversations with different groups around these things, and you know both seem to have merit. But uh, presuming there's no one right way, but how do you feel about test-driven development? I, I'm a fan of test-driven development, and certainly it's not an alternative to DDD. I think DDD is has a whole different scope than TDD. Right. Right. DDD talks a lot about like how you're going to work with the customer and how you're going to have a common language and, and model things, and you can certainly write all of your DDD code using TDD if if you're so inclined. Right. Um, my my approach is that I have written enough code using TDD and, and I and I do deliberate practice um, on doing that using you know katas and other things where I I know how to write testable code so I can write testable code without writing the tests and then anytime I start to get stuck or I'm not sure what to do or I'm not sure about how to implement something where there's actual complexity, mm. then I'll start, I'll write the test first mm -hmm. or I'll write the test, you know, immediately after. And, and then, you know, probably from that point, start writing the test first. Uh, so it's more of a, a tool in my tool build at this point that I pull out when, when I need it, which is, which is basically anytime there's, there's real complexity, but I don't TDD every, you know, auto property on, on every class, right? Like the, the stuff that I know can't break because it's, it's a built-in feature. 
Um, I'm not trying to get to 100% test coverage just to check the block. Uh, that I totally makes sense to me, and I, and I appreciate your sort of thinking around the fact that these are not mutually exclusive concepts, even though they have similar names. They are they are shareable, and and I have read through your notes on the clean architecture template, and you do have a test project, mm. which means there's no reason I couldn't be writing tests as I went before I wrote the code, just because I for exactly that reason I'm not sure how I'm going to do this. So let's work on the test plan first. That'll help me think clearly about how I actually want to do something. Correct. Yeah. And I, I probably should have mentioned that there is also that test project. Um, so, so thank you. And the other, the other cool thing that's in that test project that's not specific to TDD, um, but I, I think it's worth mentioning for folks that are coming from ASP.NET and haven't yet started doing stuff with core mm -hmm. is uh, ASP.NET core is way easier to do integration testing or functional testing on um, than ASP.NET previous was, yeah. whether it was web forms or MVC. So in this sample, you'll see how you can write tests that run in memory uh, super fast, don't have to, to have a, a IIS installed or have a, a, you know ports open on your firewall or any of that stuff, um, just runs against this test server in memory and spits back responses from your application that you can then make assertions against. Yeah. So mm -hmm. very easy to test MVC, you know, ASP.NET Core MVC or Razor Page or, or API applications using this functionality. Now, let's say you have a, a customer you're doing something for and they have, you've done a lot of projects in the past with them. They exclusively use, you know, let's say it's Azure SQL, right, as their mm -hmm. data platform. And are you going to go to the extra effort of building a data repository project for them, isn't that sort of trying to predict the future? Um, absolutely, I will. Yeah, and not because not because I think that they're necessarily going to ever change how they do their data access, mm -hmm. um, but because I want to have the flexibility of changing, you know, how I do that access, maybe for tests. Um, you know, that's okay. Sure. Usually, you want an interface. An interface is really only valuable if it has more than one implementation. Sure, of course. Um, at, at some point. Uh, and and I have two implementations almost immediately when I have the the real one that runs in production, and then my fake one or mock one or whatever in my test. Right. And so the fact that I'm going to write tests or that I want to be able to write tests justifies me putting in an interface and an abstraction. Isn't that just the difference of a connection string though, or are you talking about using an entirely you know maybe mock objects for data that doesn't really test the data though? Right. Yes. Um. I, I'm. I'm in the case of a unit test. I'm not trying to test the data. I'm trying to mm -hmm. test the code that's using the data. Yeah. And so, so if I have, let's say, a controller like for an API, and inside that controller, it you know has hard coded code to reach out to SQL Azure, grab some data, and bring it back, and then perform some logic on it, and mm -hmm. then return some subset of that data based on some custom logic. Sure. If I want to unit test that, or or even write you know a functional test. And I don't want to rack up my Azure SQL bill every yeah. time I, I run this test or, or, you know, I want to be able to test it fast and not have a dependency on the cloud. Um, I'm going to want to be able to replace that data access code with something else. And maybe I want to test it with a whole bunch of different kinds of data. Mm. Uh, I don't want to have to rebuild the data inside my Azure SQL storage just because I want to be able to test this no, with sure. a dozen different types of sets of data, right? But I guess, you know, when I'm thinking of doing the simplest thing that works, to me, I would have a, a local, you know, SQL Express or something like that, which I can point to just, you know, with the with the constructor, just change out the, the connection string instead of requiring a repository, which has, you know, a different data interface and different 
shape to it. Um, you know, I'm that's that's what I'm thinking. Sure. Is would you start would you start with that approach and then at a later time if it turns out that you need to have more flexibility, y- would that be the wrong time to add a repository to this solution? That would that would not be I, I would not argue with someone for taking that approach. It's not the approach I would take because early not early on in a given project, but early on in my career, that was the approach that I, I always took because yeah. I didn't know any better. Yeah. Uh, and what happens very quickly is when you start using a local database for all of your testing, um, you you have to write a lot of scripts to reset that database back to a, a known good state and then initialize it with all the data that all your tests need. Sure. And generally, all your tests are going to be dependent on that script. And so when you when you add a new test that maybe needs to change something about that data, it might end up breaking a bunch of other tests because they all depended on that that data being in a particular state when yeah. it started up. Yeah, yeah. Um, right. So maybe maybe you had an API method that you know expects that when you call the list method, uh, it returns two rows. Yeah. And then now you've got a new test that needs a different type of data, so you add another row. Well, you make your test pass, but now that old test that was testing that list returns two rows breaks because now there's three rows. Sure. Um, and so that's sort of a testing anti-pattern that one test is breaking other tests, <laughs> not when it's actually running, but when you're trying to, to, to write the test. Yeah. And it's because they're all dependent on that single test database. Right. Um, whereas if you use something like a repository, you could just inject in a fake um, implementation or a mock of that, that one method, that list method on that repository, right. and just say, hey, it returns this new list of, of, of whatever, new list of T with, with these things in it. And now in some other place where I need it to return something else, well, I can just tell it right there inside the test, return something else. Yeah. Um, and those two tests have no dependency on one another. Um, and so it evolves a little better. And those tests will run a lot faster because they're not actually having to reach out a process and right. talk to a database and then having to you know, destroy and recreate that database between every single test. Um, so yes, you, you can do that. And, and that would be what I would consider an integration test approach, not a unit test approach. Right. Mm-hmm. And integration tests absolutely have value and you should write those. Um, but my rule for testing is, you know, first of all, unit tests are tests that only test uh, your code. They don't test anything that's out of process or, or, you know, infrastructure. And the rule for saying whether or not you should write a unit test or an integration test should be, can I test this particular thing with a unit test? Right. If the answer is yes, then write a unit test. Right. If you can't, you know, if, if you want to test, like, does my repository actually return data from a SQL database? You can't test that with a unit test. That's that's where you write you write the integration test. Right. Um, but the unit tests are the fastest, cheapest thing to write. So if you whatever you can test with a unit test, test it that way, um, and reserve the the more expensive integration test for things that that you can't test with unit tests. Okay. Is my is my advice. Everything you say is such common sense, you know? I mean, it's just thinking these things through and doing, as you say, the simplest thing that works that isn't going to come back to bite you later. So I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. That's been years of me beating my head against walls that's uh, now <laughs> being being used to share with other people. Yeah, and it's so useful. It's so useful to hear what other people have had to deal with, you know, by making the decisions that they did. I still got to think that when folks are diving into this, they can over-engineer. Like it's easy to overthink some of these abstractions. Mm. That that's definitely true. 
Mm-hmm. Um, another another thing we were talking about TDD and DDD. Um, I, I propose uh, PDD, which is pain driven development. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. And and pain driven development basically means you know don't apply a design pattern or some principle or some refactoring until it's causing you pain. Right. And so when you experience the pain, if you've learned about you know how to do things with a design pattern or how to apply a principle or what you know domain driven design. When you feel that pain, then you you have the tool set available to alleviate it. And that pain might be duplication. It might be that your tests are running slow. It might be, you know, any number of things. Um, but there's there's all these patterns and all these things that you can use to keep your code clean um, that you can apply. But if you try and apply them all up front, your code's just going to be a mess and it's not going to do anything. Right. Um, so you need to wait and see what, what the code is doing as you make it actually work and, and solve problems for your customer. Uh, and then apply these these different approaches to to keep it clean and, and malleable um, as you see where it's it's flexing and where it's changing. What my Mr. Smith, I think you're presuming that we don't get everything right the first try. <laughs> I, I have not. <laughs> That's not been my experience. Uh, it's always a modest response from you, sir. In that yeah. sense, but, <laughs> but I mean, at the same time, you were saying like there's chunks of code you know how to write that you have had experience before, and so you don't feel the need to do that test-driven development approach to validate a bunch of things. Like, ah, oh, that pretty much looks like this. I'm going to do it this way. Mm. Mm. Yeah, most of the unit tests that I write are for code that has conditionals in it. Right. If I if I look at code and it has a cyclomatic complexity of one, mm. meaning there's only one pathway through there, um, it generally doesn't require much in the way of a unit test because it can sure. only do one thing. And if it's wrong, it should be pretty obvious that it's wrong. Right. Um, and, and if it's got a, a bug uh, in something else that it's calling, well, then the unit test for those things, th- those dependencies will, will you know, flush out those issues. Yeah. Cool. Is there anything else that we missed that you want to talk about? I know you could talk about this stuff forever, but uh, we're coming about to the end of the show. But there's room for a, a shout out or some resources or, or a last point that you want to make. I, I did want to make sure and mention again, I have a, uh, a weekly dev tips podcast and newsletter yeah. uh, that you can find either at weeklydevtips.com for the podcast or at ourdallas.com slash tips for the email. And actually, this week will be my two-year anniversary of sending out an email with a new tip every Wednesday at 10 o'clock in the morning. So mm. um, that, that two-year anniversary one will be there by the time this show airs. And I have heard it, and it's very good. Go check it out. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, it's always dude. a pleasure. Thanks, Carl and Richard. Talk to you later. Okay, and we'll see you next time on .NET Talks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a